The History with Jackson podcast. Hello and welcome back to History with Jackson. I am, of course, your host, Jackson Van Uden. And in today's episode, we are talking to historian Brad St. Croix about his paper, The Omnipresent Threat, Fifth Columnist Impact on the Battle of Hong Kong, December 1941. Now, it's really exciting to be discussing this understudied and little-known piece of history almost 80 years after it happened. Now, I know you're going to enjoy listening to Brad tell us about the role of fifth columnists, tell us the role of the British and the Japanese in the Battle of Hong Kong from December 1941. Now, before we jump into this episode, I know many of you who listen are historians or big fans of history. And I wanted to let you know that the History of Jackson blog is now featuring work by historians across the world discussing their research and their specialisms. So if you head to the History of Jackson website, historyofjackson.co.uk, and head to the blog, you can read work from upcoming and established historians where they discuss their specialisms. Or if you're interested in writing, you can head to the Write For Us tab and you can submit your idea to appear on the blog. Now, without further ado, I'll leave you with Brad. So hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. Today, we're talking to historian Brad St. Croix about his paper, The Omnipresent Threat, Fifth Columnist Impact on the Battle of Hong Kong, December 1941. Thank you for coming on today, Brad. I'm really excited to talk about this paper. I really, really enjoyed it. So how are you doing? Uh, good. I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, having me on to chat about this paper. Um, wrote it quite a long time ago, but it's the subject of my dissertation. So it's, I think, permanently stuck in my brain. So very, uh, very excited to get a chance to chat about this uh, as I said in the paper, a neglected area of the battle and uh, hopefully bring some more light to it. I think you've brought up every, every historian struggle there where you have something for a dissertation and you, you literally can't get it out of your head. It happens constantly. It always comes back, no problem. Um, and all the different sources and stuff and all the all the work it took <laughs> to get to get this together. It was I forgot how much work it actually was. And I'm, I'm sure your family members can't get it out of their head either. Uh, yeah, my wife probably heard way more than she ever bargained for about the Battle of Hong Kong, but uh, such is the life of the historian. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, actually, and you, you kind of give me a really nice uh, route into this first question that I like to ask everyone on the podcast. What was the inspiration for this this dissertation and then this article? Yeah, so the I can do the uh, dissertation first. So I initially did um, my postgraduate work on the American War in the Pacific. So looking at uh, Pearl Harbor, its impact on Hawaii, and, and how that all fit together uh, in the early years of the Second World War and kind of what that looked into, you know, statehood and things like that. Uh, so as I decided to do a PhD, I, I kind of switched my focus to Canadian. Uh, but I still wanted to keep it in the Pacific, it's a still understudied area. Canada is a Pacific nation that doesn't really see itself as that. So I wanted to, you know, kind of bring some light to that. So I had done some poking around and found uh, an article actually by my, uh, who became my supervisor about the historiographical, I want to say fight <laughs> about the battle. And then from that there, I was, I was pretty much sold. So I wanted to kind of jump in there and kind of make my mark and talk about it that way. And that's how this article came to be. I had started doing the early stages of the, the primary research 
uh, particularly in, in Britain. I had to go into the uh, awesome archive at Q uh, where I found a lot of this good stuff. And it just, nothing really didn't set out to be like, hey, let's talk fifth columnists, you know, regular warfare or whatever term you want to call it. Uh, it just kept coming up. I just kept noticing it in, in uh, like uh, memoirs from those who had fought, uh, British, Canadian, all that stuff. And in the primary documents, like the war diaries and, and after, you know, the not really after action reports, but things that were written down in the POW camps and just kept coming up. And then lucky to find an actual title of this war diary from the police, which you don't typically see from civilian organizations. So, and it was rife with mentions of the fifth columnists. And I was surprised no one had really touched on it. Um, so I decided to do it. That's an awesome route into to writing this article and looking at that that dissertation as well. I think I think you made a really nice point there, even though this this episode isn't about um Canada's place in history, but how Canada is actually a Pacific nation. Mm-hmm. Uh that was something that just really caught me during that answer there. So thank you for bringing that bit up as well. Now this article is about the Battle of Hong Kong, and I don't think we can look at a battle without addressing Hong Kong itself. You know, why was Hong Kong such an important strategic location for the British during this war? How do I say this? More about prestige, um, image. Uh, it, it had a, a strategic location, uh, but that changed. Um, the defense questions about Hong Kong had gone on since the British had taken the colony in the 1840s. Uh, during the second and first opium war, um, which is always interesting to talk about. That's a whole other thing, but uh, it it starts very early. But as the things start to change, um, you know, who even the enemy is changes, um, particularly after 1937 with war breaking out de facto officially again in the Chinese mainland between nationalist China uh, and uh, Japanese is when it really changes. So slowly Hong Kong becomes strangled off from the nationalist Chinese areas uh, on the mainland um, to be fully controlled by the Japanese. So that kind of really diminishes Hong Kong's typical strategic uh, position. I mean, it had been supplanted by Singapore well before that as the main base for the Royal Navy uh, moving into the Second World War. Uh, and we kind of all know where that goes. Um, but, but so it, it held more of a symbolic importance. Um, it was one of the oldest colonies in Asia. Uh, it, it had a major economic uh, importance, uh, being a center of banking and trade, uh, which it still is. <laughs> it, that has not changed. It hadn't changed then. Um, so it was also held on because of concerns of nationalist China asserting control over the area because the nationalist Chinese had said so multiple times that Hong Kong should be Chinese again. So there was all these concerns about holding on to this place. There was tons of debate about, should it just be left? Should we declare it an open city to not have it fought over, remove all our troops, all of our military uh, equipment? I mean, there wasn't much by the time the battle begins, but the huge debates about that. and, And obviously they decided to defend this colony as best as possible. Um, but for those who know about the battle, it, it, it doesn't last very long. It's interesting to see the the evolution of of the importance of Hong Kong and and the evolution of that area for the British and on which areas become more important and why. Uh, and particularly Chinese political history from this period onwards is particularly interesting and in looking at Hong Kong's role within that. 
But some of the main characters within this article you're looking at are the fifth columnists. You know, what what are and who are the fifth columnists within this battle? So that was the toughest challenge of this article is is, is definitions. I mean, if you read it, it's available online and anyone can, can read it, which is, I think, great to have it open source. Um, that was the struggle. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, what does it mean at the time? What are people going to understand the term to mean today? Um, you often hear the term, you know, guerrilla fighter, um, you know, coming from the Spanish uh, war against Napoleon. Uh, it doesn't quite fit in terms of what happened at Hong Kong. Um, and it was seen differently as well at the time. Fifth columnist was used because of the result of the, the Spanish Civil War um, from a nationalist general you know, pushing on, on Madrid and saying he's got a fifth column inside the city that's going to help him when he arrives, which turns out didn't actually happen. <laughs> but that's why it's called that. It's not just random. It, it, and it's applied throughout the Second World War to really anyone who is going to help an invading force but is already inside. So what that means in Hong Kong, it means all kinds of different things. Like you have Japanese nationalists who are in Hong Kong well before, you know, Japanese British relations had really soured. Um, this had been a Japanese plan. Again, I can't confirm with Japanese sources um, because I unfortunately I don't speak Japanese and getting access to them was not easy to begin with the ones that I was able to get access to. Um, so I don't know how long this plan had been going on, but it seemed it had been going on for, for quite some time. So that's a big element that a lot of the troops who fought talk about, particularly afterwards. Um, so that's a so huge element. Can I just of that. can I just ask Sorry. a question on that point? So, yeah, if if people are within a city such as Hong Kong and they're yeah. they're supporting an invading force, why mm -hmm. would they want to? Particularly in this case in Hong Kong, why would they want to support an invading force? So yeah, just. Going back to the, the Japanese nationalists, they're put in place. Um, they're said to be civilians um, doing all kinds of things. I think one was a barber who cut the hair of the Canadians, actually, who came to reinforce. And it turns out he was in the Japanese, uh, I can't remember if it was the, uh, uh, the Imperial Army or Navy. doesn't really matter. He put on a uniform and all of a sudden he's at the POW camp as a guard or something, or one of the administrators of the place. So also a major element of this um, of who is a fifth columnist is all the refugees coming from the mainland. Hong Kong is inundated with so many refugees trying to escape the fighting, uh, particularly what the time's called Canton and, and all of that area, particularly on the southern coast. So the city's overrun and can't handle this massive amount of people. Um, so they're not put in the best conditions. I mean, they tried to build camps to hold some of them. I mean, again, not the best, um, but they couldn't even come anywhere close to, to holding all those people in even somewhat okay conditions. And then, of course, you have an element here of British control in Hong Kong, which is just out and out racism. Uh, and these people who they live in the colony or, you know, live in Hong Kong and are of, you know, Chinese descent or Indian descent, or there's a whole bunch of many communities in Hong Kong that there still are there today, are not treated well by the British administrators, and that goes towards the, the refugees. So when the Japanese come over, whether they're saying, you know, offering money or food or even at the point of a rifle, there is this mass population that the Japanese were able to take advantage of and, and use to their advantage, which in the article I talk about how many advantages the Japanese had in this battle, and this was just another one. Um, so, so the motivations were 
really dependent upon the individual, to be honest, because um, you have Japanese, uh, you have the Chinese refugees, you have people who lived in Hong Kong, and then you have criminal organizations, which I know we can come back to, but they are said to be fifth columnists too. So that's what, again, even defining what that is, I still don't really have an answer, unfortunately. Uh, it's just really anyone who was fighting against the garrison, basically, was called a fifth columnist or aiding the Japanese and even the slightest way possible was deemed to be a fifth columnist. I think I think that's the irritating thing about some of these these military and these political concepts is whilst they sound fantastic and they've always got awesome names like fifth columnist and so on, yeah, they're they're always incredibly difficult to to define and 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 kind of actually say what they are. So that was a really nice summary there. Thank you. Now. What are the and you mentioned before about primary sources and reading primary sources? You know, what are the primary sources of the Battle of Hong Kong saying about these these fifth columnists? Because I think the primary source argument and uh, evidence is is really quite important in addressing this. Yeah, and just like the fifth columnists themselves, it depends on who you are and what level you're at. Um, so, as was British. Um, uh, the military, I don't know, tradition, I don't know. They were ordered to do it as the higher commanders were ordered to write reports, mostly those who had been captured by the Japanese, same with Singapore, about what had happened. So you have the higher ups in Hong Kong, um, particularly the garrison commander, uh, General Malpi. He writes about them very briefly in his report saying they don't really make a difference. They were more of a nuisance. But if you move to the lower levels, quote unquote, um, like the private soldiers, they have a different tale to tell about these these fifth colonists. And again, depending too where they part of the island they were fighting on and when. Um, some of them say it was, yeah, it was just a nuisance. Like they would shoot at them, but these people aren't trained in any way, shape or form. So it was just annoying. Uh, other times they would do things like um, uh, signal to the mainland, which the Japanese had eventually had taken over. Uh, on the island, and then artillery would fire on uh, the British artillery positions, anti-aircraft anti positions, bunkers, all of the like. So those who are around that <laughs> are saying the impact is is quite large. Now also it depends on, again, is it a private soldier? Is it the unit? Like I mentioned, the police war diary. They really play down the impact of the fifth columnists because it's their job, <laughs> to rein them in like there's literally discussions about this before the battle happens very brief um very ad hoc again that's kind of the whole defense of, of hong kong is completely ad hoc it changes non-stop um even as it's going on and that's one of them so i think the police are trying to downplay how poorly they handled it um but again there's other reports of those who work with the police saying that it was a major impact and, and, and things like um, for the blackout, right, to not give away positions at nighttime. The police would just fire on a house that turned on a light or lit a lamp or what have you. Um, so again, it's just depending on who's discussing it is this effectiveness. And as I've mentioned in my dissertation and pretty much anything I talk or write about on Hong Kong, uh, after the fact that the war of reputations, as I kind of call it, has a role to play here because as bad as it all went, <laughs> and particularly for Britain in the East, in, in East Asia, they pretty much know they're going to get it back, um, especially after they've learned that the Americans are on board. 
So they're all fighting, particularly in these POW camps that they're all put together in over blaming who did what badly because they know they're going to get hopefully get released and go back to these positions. So they're fighting over who did what and who did what poorly, who did what well, blaming each other. And I can just imagine this because they literally sat down in meetings and because they smuggled in a typewriter and are literally fighting with each other about who did what or who didn't do what or, you know, as that goes. So that also tinges these sources. And it's a major impact on on how we understand the battle is this battle of reputations. And, and if anyone else is working in this area, that's that's one for sure you got to keep in mind is is because most of this is written after. Um, like we have things like war diaries usually and, and message logs and don't have that for Hong Kong. They're all burned um, just before the surrender on Christmas Day in 1941. So this is all made relatively early but it's not of the time like you're typically used to when it comes to British Commonwealth uh, military history documents and primary sources. It's it's really interesting to hear you know those those things that you're taught in in university and school on how to evaluate the provenance of sources actually being incredibly useful in analysing this battle and and what's happening. But I, I want to kind of zoom out the battle a little bit and look at the wider context yep. of the war. I think. As you've said, uh, the the war in the east is is a part of the war that's that's often ignored and and not studied as often as the war in the west, and and also the war between Britain and Japan. So, what was the British attitudes towards Japan and their intentions towards Hong Kong? Because uh, again, it's a it's a very understudied area of of history. Again, depends on who you ask. Uh, those outside of the colony, and this is how I usually like to, to go about it, is differentiating, you know, say those at the war office or, you know, Whitehall in general, or foreign office, pick a department. <laughs> they tend to think it's not a big deal. Uh, they don't think the Japanese will even attack. They don't, you know, how, you know, how dare they even think of fighting the British Empire? They would be that dumb to do it. They think, you know, they're too strong, mostly because of the American presence in the East as well, and just American presence in the Pacific. Obviously, they were wrong. Uh, but those in the colony, uh, particularly those in command and, and, and those in head of the garrison, think that, A, this place can be defended, should be defended, and the Japanese are coming. <laughs> um, again, it depends on the time period, what the person sees and is what they're doing. I mean, there are some in the colony who don't think the Japanese will attack. Uh, even right before it happens. They have poor intelligence. Uh, Maltby thinks he's only going to face 5,000 Japanese forces, which is minimal. It's not even a full, what's a Japanese, called a regiment. Um, turns out to be a whole divisions being thrown at them with Japanese army-level assets like artillery and, and air forces. Uh, so they're, they're very much off base, and a lot of that intelligence is coming from outside, because like I said, Hong Kong is de facto cut off uh, and they also have no air assets. They literally can't even look <laughs> up from the sky. They have like five planes that are destroyed within minutes of the battle beginning. Um, so it's things like that. But the, the, the pre-battle period, the pre-war period has all kinds of debates within, again, the foreign office, the war office, um, because of the, the commander at the time, who's actually Canadian born and educated, was uh, Arthur Gresset. He constantly is sending letters to anyone who will listen <laughs> within because within the Air Force, within the British Army, uh, 
sorry, yeah, within the RAF, within the within the British Army, Foreign Office, Colonial Office, uh, anybody, <laughs> and nobody listens. He wants any reinforcements he can get. He was literally asking at one point for crates that they had shipped fighters in that were empty. He thought anything, you know, we can even try to bluff will be more than what we're doing. And he's completely ignored. And, and I found a letter. I don't remember off the top of my head of who it was. It was a lower level, uh, basically functionary <laughs> within one of the offices, basically writes to another one because sometimes they scroll notes on the folders that they come in. And he goes, why didn't he ask before <laughs> when the battle happened? And I, I'm like, I just feel bad after, you know, whatever it was, 70 years later. I'm like, he did ask. You just ignored him. So it, 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 it's depending on, you know, you know, which level you're looking at this from, um, whether on the ground, so to speak, or, you know, in Whitehall, the answer is different. And, and that's just, I guess, a major point I've tried to bring across with Hong Kong is some people, because there is quite a bit of literature written on this, try to present it as pretty black and white and it's all viewed one way, you know. Churchill famously said it can't be defended. So why do they even bother? It's not the case. Every tons of people disagreed with him. Churchill obviously changes his mind um, later on. So it's just it, it's a level of complexity that this battle is not usually afforded in, in most of the literature. That's a really nice little anecdote as well about the functionaries sending messages to each other. I think yeah. it highlights it highlights exactly what you're talking about is that there's there's different attitudes, there's different opinions and probably the chaos of the system as well within the wider war. Yeah. I mean, just with, when I got that file at, at Q, because they used to give you whatever it was, number 10 or so at a time, literally read that. I had to stop myself from laughing in the middle of the reading room, being like, you did ask. <laughs> That's the point of why I'm even here. So I was trying not to laugh. But yeah, it's it, it was an incredibly and overly complex system of, of handling all of this stuff and Again, kind of outside the scope here, but it obviously has major ramifications for what what happens in, in late forty one, early forty two. I think there are definitely moments as as historians we live for, but very hard. Like very, I'm trying to find the word. Not often are we able to put them into our work and into our books. Very often, so I I, I love that little anecdote. Yeah, but, that one actually I got to fit in because it because yeah. it fit right about yeah. this whole discussion of what to do. I was pretty excited to get that in there <laughs> i'm very jealous <laughs> so we've discussed this battle we've discussed the the wider context we've discussed who the fifth columnists are we, we've discussed hong kong but we've not actually touched on the battle how does the battle of hong kong begin so it it, it begins in kind of a, a traditional way despite what we've been talking about this whole time is for those who might not be familiar with the, the geography of Hong Kong, which is now part of China again, but at the time there is a chunk of the colony called the New Territories. It's on what you consider the Chinese mainland. And then you have Hong Kong Island, which obviously the name comes from. So there's two distinct phases. Uh, the Japanese push across the border when they decide to go to war <laughs> with, with all of the European colonial powers, basically, uh, as we know. Uh, so they just push across. Um, the fighting on the mainland is, is minimal at best. The, the, there is a defensive line that's in place. It's called the Gin Drinkers Line. It's very unfortunately named. It's named after a bay <laughs> that anchors the line. Uh, it falls very quickly due to all kinds of reasons. But 
and the fifth columnist element plays a little bit into that. Um, Japanese are wearing plain clothes, as it's called, uh, and kind of are able to, you know, snip barbed wire, cut the comms, and basically isolate this main defensive position within the line. It falls within days. It was supposed to last possibly months. Clearly did not happen. And so the, the garrison retreats after only a couple of days on the mainland. Um, and, and the city of Kowloon, major part of Hong Kong today, is overrun. And, and the people there are treated just horribly by the Japanese troops. Um, so they wait, the Japanese, for several days, about a week, preparing their attack to the island. With artillery bombardments, um, they try to tell the you know they try to tell the British to surrender uh, multiple times. They say no, um, so the artillery continues, and this is one of the elements where the fifth colonists come in is signaling. Signaling and intelligence are are massive in modern warfare, but they were doing it in the most basic way possible, right? When you're trying to hit positions, you know, knowing where that thing is is, is a good chunk of it. So at nighttime, they would. Fifth columnist would do simple things like a flashlight or a lamp and just, you know, flick it a couple of times across to the mainland. And then all of a sudden artillery would start coming down on these positions. So, so that's what the Japanese do. They use artillery uh, air attacks to soften up the defenses because there is a series of bunkers and then fixed positions put along the coast that are overcome even before the landing happens on the 18th of December when the Japanese troops of the main regiments come across the short little area known as the Mylon Passage and move into the northeastern part of the island itself. Uh, and then that's where they move through. They eventually cut into the middle of the island where all the roads converge because of the natural hills and everything like that. Uh, and take that fairly quickly the next day or two. And then from there out, the, the, you know, the garrison is split in half. It's isolated from each other. And the Japanese are able to use... Uh, their numerical superiority, their strategic superiority, their tactical superiority, along with the help of the fifth colonists to basically isolate and then pick them off. And then the whole garrison surrenders on the 25th, uh, bringing the battle to an end fairly quickly for what's happening on the island. But yeah, it lasts about 17 days. That shows a very intelligent use of resources from the Japanese to be able to, oh, yeah. to make this, this attack work. But when they're in Hong Kong, now what do the do the fifth columnists kind of lead any or spearhead any kind of attacks? Uh, a little bit. Again, it's it's hard to tell, <laughs> right? You only you only have you know the we only have the documents left. There's hardly any of these defenders are left alive. Um, I mean, I knew one. He just passed away not too long ago. Uh, a Canadian who fought there. So we just basically left with letters. And they're usually coming up on these scenes after the fighting had taken place, right? Like they'd see, you know, troops that they had, you know, killed in the fighting and they, they'd be in civilian clothes. Again, this is a lot of Canadians and, and, and Brits um, who grew up in a different time period, I'm trying to say this the nicest way possible, don't know the difference between, say, a person who is of Japanese descent or is of Chinese descent or of, you know, from Taiwan. Like they're, they're not going to know the difference more or less so this is another element of why it's confusing because it could be a japanese soldier they don't know uh, but they're in civilian clothes so some of these attacks are spearheaded by the quote-unquote fifth columnists there's an old fort um, just off the coast from where the main japanese landing on the island takes place that is said to have been spearheaded by 
quote unquote fifth colonists because they worked their way into what's basically an old, I think it's a 17th or 18th century fort that was built. Um, basically infiltrate their way in and, and take the position from the Canadians who are holding it. Uh, and that's said to be fifth colonists. Uh, the police come under uh, fifth colonist led attacks multiple times um, at their stations throughout uh, the island and on the mainland as well. Uh, those are some of the major ones, but it's not in that traditional sense of, you know, a fifth columnist at the front, you know, leading a charge. And you see it a lot too with leading uh, Japanese troops through some of the back passages over the hills and things like that. Um, because it's it's difficult to do, particularly at the time, the island looks no way like it looks today. So it's really hard sometimes to visualize these things, but these paths were hard to navigate at nighttime, even to know where they were. So a lot of the fifth colonist activity is, is, is that it's leading the Japanese around the positions um, and over the mountains, which the British did not expect the Japanese to do. Um, so just another element there that the fifth colonists really add to the Japanese attack is talking about the local terrain, right? That's usually the, uh, uh, an advantage that the defenders have, at Hong Kong, that's gone pretty much right away. So it's it's those little things, I guess, that all just really add up. Um, and, and what I noticed with all this research and, and everything, because like you said, the Japanese are incredibly well prepared. And this isn't even just Hong Kong. This is everywhere, right? This is every attack that they carry out in, in late 41 into 42 has been prepared for a long time, thought out, war game, you name it, whatever. And, and this is no different. So they're extremely well prepared and they're just gaining advantages, you know, either through force or paying people off or, you know, whatever it took, they were willing and able to do it. And it's, it's quite interesting to see how old values made it difficult, old values and um, attitudes made it difficult for the British to be able to, to counter what was going on. Now we've, we've already touched on how the, the police, in in Hong Kong, were trying to shut down Fifth Columnist, trying to to support the British defence. But you mentioned an interesting part of that earlier, and I, I think it ties in with some of these attacks as well. You know, how was the ability to to shut down and facilitate the Fifth Columnists supported or not by criminal organisations in Hong Kong? Yeah, that that one was honestly when I when I read about that for the first time, it kind of blew my mind of of what all that meant. Again, these are criminal organizations that have are based out of Hong Kong in a way, but have connections to the mainland, and then you're bringing in the complicated relationship with the nationalist Chinese government led by you know Chiang Kai Shek and all of those different elements. I'm not even sure entirely where they're all based out of. And then within the British imperial system, <laughs> you're just adding layer upon layer upon layer. So the biggest thing, then the thing that how I found out about all of this is it's just a brief mention. I can't remember where the first one I read, but there's a mention that and they're called the triads in all the British documents is they're going to carry out an attack and kill any basically white person they can find. This was said to be paid for by the Japanese to, you know, cause chaos behind the lines, right? Because a lot of those defending Hong Kong, there's a local defense force, but also others had families living there. So they thought that they could 
really sow discord amongst the troops by you know, killing their families. Um, the British get wind of this. Uh, again, not entirely sure who told them. May have been the nationalist Chinese. Nobody really says how this comes to be known. They meet with them, the, the colonial officials, meet with the leaders of these criminal societies, I think they call them, uh, with help from the nationalist representatives inside Hong Kong and on the island, who, again, remember, are not really getting along with the British officials really ever. And they broker a deal that the, the triads will not attack white people as they had planned to do. But once this is all over, they can start to, and whatever that means, they can start to extort from the Chinese population, or they say the local population. Um, so they're basically trading away the rights or the lives of these other people for those of European descent within the colony. So this is all going on as well. They're said to bring on these criminal organizations to help suppress the fifth columnists. Everything I read says that they didn't change anything they did. They didn't carry out this supposed plot to kill all these people, which I don't actually believe was in place. Um, I just think logistically it would have been too difficult, um, particularly with a battle going on. Um, I just don't think they would have been able to pull that off. I don't think anybody would have been able to pull that off. Um, but the, there's, again, reports of known members of these criminal groups adding to the confusion in, in, in ways you wouldn't expect. Like they, once the fighting had begun, uh, rice distribution was controlled centrally. So they would go into these places and just start causing chaos and riots so that they could basically just steal. I mean, they're said to be part of these groups. They're said not to be part of these groups. Again, identifying people and who they are, and who they aren't is extremely difficult because this is normally the prevalence of the police. But a lot of the police had been pulled away to fight as regular frontline infantry. So all the information that the police may have had on these people is difficult to, to determine. And a lot of this is taking place at nighttime and, and again, it's just, again, one of the things I'm driving home here is the confusion, the chaos, and this is just adding to it all. Um, again, I don't really think the criminal organizations did anything to help suppress fifth columnists, rioting, looting, anything, right? Like even the blackout, they, I think they added to it. They didn't do any of this, whereas official British reports, because they know this is going to get out afterwards, say they actually made a difference. So, of course, they're going to say that when they broker a deal to basically say, yeah, you can extort these people now to save these other people. And, you know, again, saving face for afterwards. And you see that amongst the police war diary, the police documents, the military documents. It's, it's all throughout it. And it's this one of these things that you often come across in history that's some, you know, sensationalism might say it, it's this hidden history it was never hidden. It was always out in the open. Just nobody had poked around and put it all together. So, and, and it's just an area, unfortunately, I haven't been able to return to. It's something I would have loved to look at more, but it's just, it's an area that I guess that's one of those things that maybe a future project of, of looking at this deeper and, 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 you know, what these organizations did or didn't do and what the police knew or didn't know. I mean, it's, it, it's so complicated now, especially, you know, after the handover back to China and, and all those organizations not really existing in the form they exist in anymore. Sorry, they existed at the time. They're different now. I'll run out of Beijing now. So it's it's just another layer of complexity that it just keeps adding to this. I mean, it, it, again, the, the goal really of this article was to add a layer of confusion 
to the historiography of this to make it not so clear cut. And I, I really hope I have done that because this is what the documents say happened. Well, that that was actually going to be my next point. My 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 points that that answer there is that this all is so it it just genuinely feels like such a mess from the British side. I mean, I didn't I didn't even need no. He didn't even know where to fit that question in within my rest of the questions because I was like, well, it's tied to this and it's tied to the police and it's tied to this part of the battle. And it kind of feels like the the perfect storm for the Japanese, you know, to for this battle. You know, how how were the Japanese able to actually finally win this battle and, and defeat? Sowing that chaos was a big part of this plan. Um, a lot of it was for intelligence gathering, but if chaos comes along with it, you know, why not? Uh, that, that's a big part of it. But conventional, the conventional military elements uh, for the Japanese are the reason why they win. I mean, they have, and this is a one thing that I also like to point out when it comes to um, the Battle of Hong Kong and fitting it into the larger early stages of the war in the Pacific is Hong Kong is actually one of the few, I think it might be the only major, depending on what you consider major uh, European or you know Western colony that is actually outnumbered by the Japanese in falls, right? Singapore, they over, you know, very much over, you know, have a numerical superiority over the Japanese attackers. You see that out through Malaya, uh, some of the American colonies as well. They just have like the Philippines, they have more people than the Japanese do. Hong Kong, that's it's it's flipped. The Japanese outnumber them. I think it's three to one, roughly, of those fighting. You know, compared, you know, you know, declared combatants again. Whatever that means in this battle is different, but it, it, that is a superior advantage that they have. Uh, the Japanese have control, complete control of the air. The, the Hong Kong, the RAF, in, in Hong Kong was basically grounded before the battle even started. They fight as frontline infantry as well. Uh, there's a small Royal Navy presence that actually fights extremely well, given with what they have. They have mortar torpedo boats that do a fantastic job of stemming some of the landing attempts. Uh, there's a destroyer there that does a ton of work, uh, gets takes on so much damage and grounds itself and is trying to use its guns as much as possible. They also, and then they come off the boat and fight as infantry. I mean, the, the defenders are doing their best, but the Japanese who have been fighting in China, particularly this division, 38th division, had been fighting in China for a very long time. So they had to learn how to fight in this type of terrain, how to use infiltration tactics, how to push advantages when you have them. Uh, a lot of the troops in the garrison had never fought before. Uh, very few of them had actually seen, you know, traditional combat. Some of them had served in India on the, on the, on the, the frontier there in the Northwestern frontier at the time. But that's few and far between. So the Japanese have all these advantages that you would traditionally talk about if you're just going to do the straight up Battle of Hong Kong. You have intelligence, you have material support, you have logistics and all of that. But with all of that said, some of the tactical decisions down really at the basis level you can find, maybe at, you know, batteries of artillery or squad level tactics are actually not that good. <laughs> the Japanese take a high number of casualties considering all of these advantages they have. There's at points where battalions are getting funneled into machine guns and they just charge forward. So again, it's part of a whole balance of this stuff. You have all these higher level advantages. Again, I've already said it, but the planning and the conduct of the higher levels of the Japanese are extremely well done. I'm not taking that all away from them but if you really look at it at the lower levels they are doing just straight up dumb things 
like getting funneled in between these hills and then charging, you know, fixed positions with Vickers machine guns that'll fire all day long. And they take high number of casualties from, you know, a position being held by like four or five defenders holding up hundreds. You know, it's just it's just another level of this complexity of this battle. So the Japanese obviously are able to use their numeric superiority, which plays a major role. But the strategic planning, like cutting the island in half, which is planned before the battle starts, is really what does the garrison in. And and it was done fairly quickly after the landing. So, I mean, you can fight on as long as you want, but the strategic situation had changed to their disadvantage for the defenders pretty much right away. And it's it's incredible to see, you know, such a small force being outnumbered three to one, still being able to put up a valiant fight against a much better prepared enemy, uh, much better drill, and, and at this point, military smart. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean... The, Again, just jumping in there, that's that's a big role in this, is another part of the, doesn't really come up with the fifth column, this comes up a little bit, because, you know, how it's dealt with, <laughs> right? Like, how do these units respond to these fifth columnists and things like that? There's this overarching argument by some that the Canadians who have come there have no idea what they're doing, they're poorly trained, they did nothing. They're just a bunch of drunken colonials, which is actually said multiple times. <laughs> But in things of dealing with the fifth colonists, holding off Japanese attacks, actually attacking the Japanese and succeeding is is a part of this as well. So it doesn't hold water a lot of these claims that are made about the Battle of Hong Kong. And, and the fifth colonist is just one other one of these elements of the supposed straightforward, simplistic battle, which is not even close to the case. Well, thank, thank you for that. I think that's, that's fascinating to to kind of correct mis- some misconceptions and, and to bring some history that's understudied, particularly here in Britain, because we tend to be focused on the on the Western Front. But yeah. I've got a final fun question for you now, Brad, as we do for every guest here on the History Jackson podcast. You know, you're the creator of OTD Military History. Which is your favourite day in military history? Yeah, I've been thinking about that. <laughs> it's hard to say to have like a a favorite day, right? Because it's it is it's military history. People people die, people get killed. It's it's hard to say f- favorite. Um, so so I'm not going to say favorite because <laughs> it's not you know, very hard to find the lighthearted in in, in this because it's still full of suffering and death. Um, but moving forward, particularly with my own work and what anniversaries are coming up, right? Because the OTD stands for on this day which is how I used to do all the work I did is, is profile events every day um, is big anniversary for Normandy is coming up. I know we just been going on and on about, don't just talk about the West, but I, I have a family connection to the fighting in Normandy and I've been there and I really enjoy just Normandy, the place and the people they are great. So June 6th obviously sticks out to me. Um, June 6th, 1944. It's hard not to just because of the place it occupies and, Military history, also Canadian military history, which is my majority of my focus. So it, it, it's it's one of those days and so much just flows from that day. And I do think it has a major impact on, on Canada. Uh, it's downplayed a little bit in that regard. And I guess that's why I'll pick it as the the favorites, quote unquote, because it's it, it, a lot of it stems from from that day. And, and, and a lot of my work stems from it. So it's it's an important one, I guess I'll say. That's a. Again, in the same vein, that favorite probably wasn't the right word. Nice probably isn't, but that's a that's a nice day and, and an event to choose to kind of to give us. So thank you very much for that. Now, obviously, 
our listeners have, have heard you talk about this amazing battle and they're, they're going to want to go away and interact with you and your work online. So where can they find you and your work? So I'm on most of the major platforms. Um, YouTube is, is where I do the majority of my work now. I'm really starting to get into, I mean, I've had the channel for a while, but presenting things visually and, you know, and how the whole YouTube space is where I do a good chunk of my work, particularly when it comes to Hong Kong. Uh, so OTD military history uh, that should bring them up on any platform I'm on. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube are the major ones for me. Uh, the ones I spend the majority of my time focused on. So if you uh, search those out and uh, there's a whole Hong Kong uh, playlist uh, on the YouTube channel. I've talked about all kinds of things there. The battle did a, you know, an ask me anything, talked about uh, the historiography and, and some of the other anecdotes I've come across in researching this. So you can definitely learn some more about this battle through my YouTube channel. And I do thoroughly recommend going away and looking at your YouTube channel because it is a great channel and I know everyone's going to enjoy it. No worries. And I will make sure that a link for this, this article is in the description below because it is a great read and we've only touched on a very small part of it. So thank you very much for coming on, Brad. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. I uh, enjoyed it and uh, hopefully some more people can start reading about Hong Kong. <laughs> hopefully. So thank you very much for listening to this newest episode of the History of Jackson podcast where we spoke to Brad all about the role of fifth columnists within the Battle of Hong Kong in December 1941. Now remember, if you enjoy the content that we create here at History of Jackson, either through the podcast, through social media, or on our brand new revamped blog, please do consider heading to the Buy Me A Coffee profile in the description below, or subscribing to History of Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts.